Good afternoon and welcome to our Bible study. Last week, uh, we worked on the first half of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And what we will do today is we will continue uh, uh, with the rest of chapter 4 and go into chapter 5, uh, which continues on the same subject matter as chapter 4, namely all matters to oh well some some of the matters to do with uh, what is to come uh, after our death and and the and the coming of Christ and the coming of judgment. So those that's our uh, our subject for today. And if we have time, which we which I hope we may may have, we will finish chapter five and finish the letter. But uh, I leave that to you. Uh, I, 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 I don't mind if we don't, but if we do, that's that's fine too. Let's open with prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, mercy and love in gathering us to your holy Christian church, giving us your name and adoption into your family, membership in your kingdom. And we pray that as we study now your word, that you'd confirm us in the faith, give us a lively and unshakable hope in your promises, and that you fill us with your love, that as we have been loved, we also may learn to love you and our neighbours. This we ask in Jesus' name. Oh. Amen. Oh. <coughs> right, so uh, we are going to go from chapter 4, verse 13 today, uh, which is a new subject matter, a new topic uh, that uh, Paul picks up, and this may well be the primary cause of his writing the letter, or if you like, the trigger, the thing that particularly spurred him on to writing. You will remember that um, what that Paul is writing to a church that is uh, quite uh, young and new. He has had to leave them without giving them full instruction in all things uh, because of the uh, hurry with, in which he left. And that he has sent Timothy to go and visit them. And Timothy has come back with a very positive report of the strength uh, of their faith and how they live uh, with great love for one another and for the other churches. But clearly there is an issue uh, that he has to deal with or he has he de- uh, is concerned about. And that is the issue that he is now uh, speaking of here, which is that they clearly are the Christians in Thessalonica are either confused or upset or more likely both about the whole question of uh, what will happen to those who have died. So uh, with that in mind, what I'd like to do is to read the rest of chapter four. So from from verse 13 uh, to the end of the chapter. Somebody would like to read for us, please. Shall I? Thank you. But we do not want you to be uniformed, brothers. Uninformed. Oh, sorry, uninformed others, about those who are asleep. But you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, 
and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thank you. I don't know if you remember from last week, but last week when Paul was teaching them about the Christian life, about uh, sanctification, he kept referring to the fact that he trusts that they know. So he said things like um, uh, that uh, we ask and urge you that you, uh, as you receive from us, how you ought to walk in the police God, just as you are doing, you do so more and more. Verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. He's, he kind of uh, emphasizes the fact that they know. And he's just reminding them and, and encouraging them to do more of that which they already know and are already doing. But now we have a complete change of tone where it says, we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant. We don't want you, we do not want you not to know. In other words, this is clearly something that about which he is teaching them. And this is the first time that he's teaching them. They clearly that they don't know. Um, I was just reading uh, this morning. I was reading um, Matthew uh, chapter 13, Jesus teaching of parables. Uh, in Matins and, and, uh, having taught various parables to the disciples, particularly, uh, Jesus asked them, do you, you know, do you understand these parables? And they say, yes. And they said, every scribe, uh, he uses this Jewish term scribe, so, so teacher of the word, uh, is like someone who brings out of their storehouse new, old and new thing, old, old things and new things. In other words, that the task of teaching God's word consists of reminding the hearers of what they already know, things that are, are familiar to them, and then teaching them new things so that we are always growing, expanding. Um, it doesn't mean that every Christian needs to become a, an A, like a, a doc, doctoral level expert in, in every theological question, but rather it's a question of constantly growing and maturing Starting where we start from, some of us start from a high place, some of us from a lower place, as it were. Some of us learn faster, some of us learn more slowly, some of us are capable of holding more things in our heads than others. doesn't matter. The point is that we don't stand still, but we are constantly learning new things, but not at the, re- not at the cost of moving away from what we already know. But we stand on the foundation, the old that we already know, and then we build on that. That's what Paul is. He's not teaching about how to do that, he's actually doing that. He's taught them something, he reminds them, and now he's, and now something new. And it's not just that he thinks, you know, you know, what would be an in- interesting teacher this bit? I know, I'll teach him about this. No, they have a pastoral need. What do you would, you know, just reading this passage, we don't know anything about the circumstances except what we, we just know what Paul writes to them in the circumstances. What do you think uh, are the circumstances that require Paul to write about this particular thing? Well, so people aren't confused, I suppose, and they get the right message. So why, what's happened <laughs> that they might be confused? Or might have caused confusion? What do you think might have happened in Thessalonica that has caused this issue to crop up so that Paul decides this needs to be dealt with? You see, um, giving them information 
as to what would happen to actual Christians. Yes. The ones that believe. Yes. And not what would happen to the people that don't believe. Yeah, but that, yes, yeah. so he's, he's addressing Christians and, and what, what is happening with Christians. But why is he? What's happened in Thessalonica? There's a lot of persecution. And so this, these brothers might die because of their faith. And there is a lot of persecution. Uh, we don't actually know the circumstances. We don't know if those two things are connected, but it does seem evident that People have died in Thessalonica. Christians, believers have died. And Paul has already taught them. What he's taught them is that Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, he will gather to himself all those who believe in him. He will rescue us from the world of sin and death, and he will bring us to everlasting life. And we have no reason to think anything other than that. Paul, at least early on, and this is fairly early on, or halfway through his, his ministry, and, and many Christians expected that Jesus would probably come back in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. They, they, there is plenty of evidence of if you read between the lines of the New Testament. That's what they expected. That sometime when Jesus come back, he said, "I'll be, I'm coming soon." And of course, if we say I'm coming soon, I mean, what soon? I mean. As soon for a two-year-old is, is sooner than for a 20-year-old, but nevertheless, soon you expect it's not going to take that long. And so Jesus will come back in our lifetime. And all of a sudden, people have died. And they said, oh, no, they missed out. They died and Jesus hasn't come back yet. What's going to happen to them? Because they, Paul hadn't had the opportunity to teach them properly on this matter. And so now this crisis comes where these people are grieving for these Fellow believers who've been baptized like they have, who've shared in their faith, but they've died before Jesus came back. Are they going to miss out on everything? What's that completely wasted? Is their, is their salvation kind of forfeit because they're dead? So it's, you can see it's in some ways it's a sort of elementary mistake, but we see it as an elementary mistake because we have, we've read chapter four of one Thessalonians before. They hadn't. And if you've only ever learned what you would, what you were taught for you know, uh, on, you know, Sunday after Sunday for two months, that's all you knew about the faith. You might make some elementary mistakes yourself. But that seems to be the scenario. And so Paul is writing to them to reassure them. And there's something, I mean, just a little, little sidestep here. There was a strand in uh, New Testament scholarship amongst of academic New Testament scholars, probably about 130, 140 years ago, uh, started and onwards. And it has only recently died a, 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 a long overdue death, thankfully, this, this particular line of thinking, which is that they, they understood, they saw all this kind of expectation of Jesus' immediate return. And then obviously it didn't happen. And so they assumed that there must have been this terrible crisis where people begin to realize, hang on, everybody's dying. It's not just that a couple of people are dying. Everybody's dying. The apostles are beginning to die. And Jesus still hasn't come back. What are we going to do? So this is great crisis. There was actually a, this has been studied more recently. There was a, a quite a famous study in America. There was a cult. Uh, one of these small cults, just a, a small number of people who believed that on a such, on such and such a day, by midnight, aliens from space are going to come and rescue them before the destruction of the world. Mm. 
And this uh, socio- sociologist, I think, some, some academic, was really fascinated by this. Of, hey, Groot is a great thing, and decided to go study this thing. So he joined them. Mm. And then he studied them during that day, or running up to, you know, I mean, I run up to that day, on that day, and then what happened afterwards when the aliens didn't come. And there was this, you know, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming, it's nearly midnight, they must be any moment soon, midnight comes and goes and they didn't come. And what happened was that those first, apparently, there was this sort of great depression, said, have we, you know, have we, you know, what's this whole thing just, was it a lie, was it not true? And then very quickly, there was a change of mood again, and they reinterpreted the whole thing, said, ah, they didn't come, and that's a good thing. Because that means that there's a bit more time for more people to join us before they then actually come. And so they, they turn the defeat or the kind of seeming failure of prophecy, they turn it into an opportunity and they just reinterpreted everything. There was no further information, but they just reinterpreted that way. And so this cult went on for some time longer before it eventually dissolved. Now this, there was this idea that Christianity was just the same. <laughs> No, Jesus is going to come back soon. Oh, he didn't come back. Oh, that's because, and then they kind of made up this, you know, Christians, they made up this new thing out of this crisis. The New Testament is all about, you know, it's all about kind of trying to reconcile the absence of Jesus, the failure of the promise. And, and that's why we have the New Testament. <coughs> now, the reason I mention this is because the world is full of people who say this, this whole faith is made up and you will have people tell that to you as well. In fact, this is nothing new because in 2 Peter, uh, we have, uh, Peter writing the second letter about, that this is within the lifetime of the apostles. So, um, and, and Peter writes this. Let me just find it. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through the, your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So in the lifetime of the apostles, people were saying this already. Nothing's changed. Where's the promise of his coming? And to reassure you of this, first of all, there is zero evidence whatsoever that this crisis ever took place. We have zero evidence at any point Christians said, oh no, Jesus isn't coming back, what are we going to do? Apart from the Christians in Thessalonica, they're the exception. There was never this point, oh no, what are we going to do? He didn't know, did he fail? No, he didn't fail. And then they changed everything and started teaching a new thing. That just isn't there. Moreover, Jesus from the very beginning said, Go make disciples of all nations. And what was really evident, far more evident, or equally evident, that Jesus didn't come back, is that by the time the apostles died, the gospel hadn't been taken to all the world. In fact, there are still people here today who haven't heard the gospel. Not many, but there are some. And so this really is a local problem. And, and I only wanted to mention this to you and talk about it for five minutes because it's the sort of thing that people still say. You know, where is Jesus? How is 2,000 years soon? And to this, the Bible says, well, 
one day is to God like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. So, you know, it might feel like a long time to us, but really, I mean, if the scientists are right in the early world, it's millions and billions of years old. What's a thousand years here or there? You know, mm-hmm. it's in, you know, people talk about millions, you know, these huge expanses of time. And even if that isn't true, we're not really, we are, we are kind of little ants, you know, we do, what do we know about what's, what's true and what's not? Anyway, so that's the background to all of this. So let's see, what does Paul now say to these Christians who are struggling and, 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 and toiling with this question and are, are clearly upset? <coughs> we do not want you, concerning times and the seasons, this is a sort of Jesus kind of word, phrase that Jesus uses about his coming. Oh, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong, wrong, okay. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Who are the asleep? Yes. Those who have died, yes. Now, the moment you call it sleep, there's been some studies into what is meant, how do people understand the term sleep, you know, as a, as a euphemism for death. But if you call it sleep, what do you, what does that imply? You wake, wake up. You wake up again. But probably not as the same people we are now. Well, we are the same people, but we're not the, we are not the same as we are. You'll still be Barbara, I'm afraid. Yes. No escaping that. Yes. <laughs> but you yes. won't be, you know, the, in first Corinthians chapter 15 talks about this. It's very, Paul sort of grapples with this question. He says, you know, what, what you sow is not what comes up. You put down seed up comes a plant. You know, they're not the same. And we sow something, something that is imperishable and what comes up is something, it's something that is perishable and what comes up is imperishable. And what we've sow is, is something that is, is uh, fleshly. What comes up is spiritual. Spiritual doesn't mean not made of stuff. It just means that it's a create, creation of the spirit rather than merely of flesh. Um, so yeah, wait and see. We haven't been told what that is. Yes. And I mean, you know, when we die, you may, we may not be, they, uh, people not seeing us, but we might be seeing them. Well, this is one of those things. I mean, here says to, 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 um, to preempt any any questions about this, the Bible doesn't tell us almost anything about that. And what what it does say, it, it refers to death asleep. Now, how specifically and literally uh, we should take that is 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 obviously a matter of, of of opinion and discussion because again, the Bible doesn't specify that. But if you think of sleep. Sleep is, in in some senses, like death, which is that you're not aware of your surroundings at all. And, you know, if we have a dream or about something, that's, it's just, you know, that's not our surroundings. We we live in an imaginary world. But sleep is a state where we are unaware of of, of our surroundings. We are, we are, what, what's the phrase? Dead to the world, we'd say, when we're fast asleep. Um, it's good to remember, this is an old Christian sort of insight, that every night we when we go to bed, it's the last time that we know that we will be alive. Mm, that's true. And we should, and therefore every bedtime is like dress rehearsal for a deathbed. Yes. And it's good to know that, good to remember that, and not to mm. take anything for granted. You may or may not have another day. Mm. And so always to go to bed. That's why it says things like, you know, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Mm. You don't want, you don't want anger and malice or or bitterness or resentment, <laughs> any of those things, to be the last thing no. in your or somebody else's life. But it is a sleep. Death is a sleep for us because it is not the end. Death is not the end. It is the end of this phase of our lives. 
just like sleep is the end of a day, but not the end of the world. Um, but his, what's his goal? Verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the, uh, those who are asleep. What does he try to, what does he try to, uh, um, ensuring them? He's trying to ensure them that they will, the ones that are dead will be back again. But why does he want them to know that? According to verse 13. Then they may, they may already be thinking that people who've died that they know. But what does he say in verse 13 about it? What is it, what does he state as his aim in verse 13? So that they don't grieve. He doesn't know. He doesn't. I wanted to, I was hoping somebody would say that so I could say, no, wrong answer. Uh, it's not that, that you do not grieve. If you don't grieve when somebody dies, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> you know, somebody needs to come and prod you with a sharp needle to see if you're still alive. I was at, I was, I was at a funeral yesterday and it was a very small funeral, immediate family only, and they all cried a lot. And I commended them for it. If you don't cry when a loved one dies, or if you don't at least grieve in whatever way you grieve, you need, you need to be examined for, you know, what's wrong with you. Grieving is not bad. Because death is the enemy. Death is not a friend. Death is the enemy. Death is not, I know it's part of nature, but it's not natural to us. We were not created to die, but to live. So that's but not you can grieve. But you can, you can grieve so that you have the hope of, of seeing again. Well, that is the, the hope that we have of eternal life. Right. And I want to separate those two things out. The Bible does not give us as our hope for uh, uh, for those who have died, that we will see them again. He never says that, and it doesn't even address that question. Because that's actually not, I mean, for us who are left behind, it's a comforting thought, but that's not so important. It seems important to us now, but that's not really, really important. What is the hope? The hope is that they will live. And not just that they will live, but they will be with Christ and we will be with Christ. And that's a far, far <coughs> um, better and more important goal and a far stronger and comforting promise than that we will see them again. Because we will see Jesus. We all will all see Jesus. And that's the, it's what, uh, you know, uh, is, is called in, in Christian tradition, the beatific vision, the kind of the, the blessed, blissful state of having sight of Jesus, having sight of God all the time. And I, I can assure you that if for whatever reason I predeceased, predeceased you, and if you are upset about that, you'll be far more pleased to see Jesus than you'll be pleased to see me at the resurrection. <laughs> And if not, again, you need to have your souls examined because he is a much better deal than I am. So it's not, so he's, what he wants them to say, if you look at verse 13, says, um, that we don't want you to be from brothers that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he doesn't mind them grieving. Grieving is natural and in fact it is good in many ways. But you, they don't grieve as if there was no hope. You grieve with hope. 
you know, it's when you when you say, I don't know, I mean, you, we've all got relatives who live in other countries, um, people we love, and when when you know when we see them and we then go to the airport and, and we leave or they leave, it's always hard and it's sad. But when we, you know, it, it's a very different thing when you say goodbye, see you next in a year or two year, years time or two years time. That's not nice. But say, no, it's a kind of we'll see, we'll see again, you know, we'll meet again. Whereas if you go and see somebody and you know that you will never see them again, that's a very, very different kind of departure, isn't it? And what Paul is saying is when fellow believers die, it's not a never see you again, but it's a we'll meet again. Or rather, this is not the end. There is something beyond, which is, uh, which, you know, death is asleep. And this is the thing, hope. This is, and, and, and if I'm, am I allowed a, a little hobby horse about funerals? <laughs> I've got them. I've got the stand. Sorry. You can't stop me. Um, you know, you go, we go to funerals. So, you know, we, you know, dressing bright colors. This is a celebration of life. That's a, it's a modern, modern fashion. Mm. I personally think it's a really, really unhelpful thing to do mm. because it tries to hide the reality of death mm. and just to come and, you know, let's celebrate the death. We don't have funerals to set for celebration. That's not the purpose of somebody's died. And it's really important. Whenever I conduct a funeral, um, especially of people who I don't know, I, I always say we are here for three things. We're here to remember a person who's no longer with us. We're here to grieve. And we hate to commend them to God. Those are the three things we do in a funeral. And that remembrance will hopefully have not, you know, that's a, there's a sort of joy in, and in, in what has been, but also there's a grief that it was and it's not anymore. Whatever wonderful things there to celebrate about a person who died. The reason we have a funeral is that they're not there anymore. These things have been lost. They are in the past. And I think it's good to be and important to be honest about it. Um, but a f- funeral of a Christian, Though it should be, uh, you know, we, we should grieve, is nevertheless a celebration. But it's not a celebration of things past, but a celebration of things to come. It is a, it is a celebration of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and death is therefore uh, already on its way out. That this death is not final and that, that there is a hope. But it's not a celebration of that person's life in the past is a celebration of the, the life that they have yet to receive, which is the really big thing. Mm. So if you would like me to do a celebration of your life as your funeral, I will refuse. Okay. And I will, uh, I will be sad. And you're not going to stop me, but I will not be sad as if there was no hope, but as one who has a hope for the future. So that's the, that's the really important thing. So that's the message. And then the rest of it is now just the detail. So let's have a look at it. Verse 14. And this is, you know, it's quickly said, but it's absolutely central to the gospel. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the whole of the Christian hope is based on what happened to Jesus. If Jesus died and rose, then those who died, he doesn't, he says it in different words, but those who died will also live. 
Uh, first Corinthians 15, again, is, I mean, you know, he, this is, he's writing this in Corinth. A couple of years later, he writes a letter to Corinth because in Corinth, they had a different problem. If you recall, that there were some people saying the resurrection's already happened. This is the resurrection. And, uh, Paul basically says, if, if, if that's what you're saying is then we really are pitiable people. <laughs> we are all people most to be pitied because if, if there is no resurrection, an actual resurrection from the dead, then that means that Jesus didn't rise from the dead either. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are still in our trespasses and sins and we have no hope. But Jesus didn't just as if die and rise or die and as if rise, but Jesus actually died and he actually rose. That's the gospel. So to the Corinthians, uh, when he's teaching them uh, in First Corinthians 15, and we won't study First Corinthians 15 today, but he, he begins the whole chapter by rooting in saying that this is the gospel. He says, um, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, number one priority, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's everything. That's the heart of everything. Anything else you say, anything else you say, has to be arise out of that, or it's not Christianity. It's something new. So our whole beacon. Now, what does that, that Jesus died and rose from the dead, how does that give us hope? So he said, well, that's nice for Jesus. It's a bit like um, one, I wouldn't mention him, but, uh, him by name, but one of my colleagues in the ministry in this church, in the ELC, has a, 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 a rather um, strong aversion to uh, a very famous and popular hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. He says, I hate that hymn. And the reason is that basically the message of that hymn is you're going to die, but God will live. Like, mm. that's not much of a hope. And mm. I, I'm not sure he's been completely fair to the hymn writer. <laughs> but I said, that's if you read the words of the hymn, he's saying, you know, we all die. We are like flowers, but God will live forever. It's like, well, that's nice for God. <laughs> well, how is that good, good news for me? So how is it good news that Jesus died and rose in the dead? What, do, what has that got to do with us? How does that deliver to us hope? Because he said anyone who believes in him will also do the same. Right. He said, he said, whoever, if you, whoever, I am the, he said, he doesn't say I will rise, but I am the resurrection and the life. Mm. And if, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And if you li- believe in me, you shall never die, Jesus said. So death, even when you die, when you die, you're not dead in Christ. How does this come about? How do we get to be- become sharers or partakers of the death and resurrection of Jesus? By being baptised and taking the blood and wine on? It's through baptism. Yes. In holy baptism, we're Romans 6, we're baptised into the death of Christ and his resurrection. Paul repeats in Colossians chapter 2. We're baptised into his death and into his resurrection. Mm. Our baptism is a baptism in the power of Christ's resurrection. So we are in Christ because we're baptised and therefore we uh, have already shared, come to share in his death and resurrection, even while we live. Mm-hmm. We died to sin, to live to righteousness. 
But that means, therefore, that everything that Jesus did by his death and resurrection has already been, you, you've already come to share. And it's good to remember that when you feel the ache and the burden and, and, and the weight and the kind of um, impending uh, so doom of your own mortality. You know, we all feel a little bit older than five years ago, which means that we are that much closer to our own graves and, and it can become an oppressive thought. When, when you're resurrected, it'll be as a spirit, won't it? No. Well, well, believe in the resurrection of the body, we yeah, say. Yeah, I know, but it doesn't make sense to me. No, no. The that... body's rotted. And this is where what makes sense to me and what was actually the case need to be very carefully kept apart. Mm. One of my favourite theologians is Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> who says, I'm a bear of very little brain. Yeah. And so what yeah. we know and what we can perceive, what we can imagine, is not very much. And this is why when, when Paul writes about the resurrection body in First Corinthians 15, he's incredibly hazy mm. and vague. He writes what we can know, which is that we will rise, that there is a resurrection of the body, and that the body that will be raised will not be like this body in every respect, because it's a body that is a spiritual body. The spiritual body is still a body. Mm. And... Well, I can see the sense in that. Yes, but what that, yes, but what it is, we don't know. We have, it's, it's very much weighted. And if you're holding an acorn in your hand, but you've yeah. never seen anything other than an acorn. If you know that, if you put it in the ground, you look after it, you will turn into a tree, but you've only ever seen an acorn. You're looking at this thing and that will give you very few clues as to what you're going to get out of the ground. <laughs> well, they say that we will re- recognize each other too, doesn't it? It says in the Bible. Well, it doesn't say specifically that we will recognize each other, but what we do know, for example, that when Jesus, when Jesus, uh, meets Moses, you know, when on the Mount of Transfiguration, like we heard last Sunday, Moses and Elijah were there and they were recognized as Moses and Elijah. So it doesn't say that, but it's implicit. You know, if it wasn't Moses, if Moses and Elijah post-mortem weren't recognizably them, then they would never have known who's Moses and Elijah. Mm. And somehow they were. But the, almost all these questions of what it's going to be like are unanswered in scripture mm. because essentially we don't need to know. Mm. You know, it's like if you've got your, if you say, I want to start an oak plantation, I've got here a bucket full of acorns. All you actually need to know is what to do with those acorns. You don't have to worry too much about exactly what will happen and how it will happen. Plant these at such and such a distance, doing in such and such a way, and look after them in this way, and this is what you can expect. A tree. If you don't know what a tree looks like, Wait and see. <laughs> Give it yeah. 50 years and you have a really good idea what no tree looks like. Somebody asked me once, is heaven like a planet? And the answer is no. We believe that God will create a new heaven. If it's a new heavens and a new, new earth. It's got to be very big. <laughs> That's, well, it's, it's, if you, if you took the entire human population that has ever lived, it would very comfortably fit inside the parent, present solar system, which is quite small in the, yeah. Of the universe. So I don't think that's going you mean to be... in di- on different planets. Well, you know, I don't. This, none of these <laughs> technical problems are going to be technical, oh, know, technical know, challenges to God. I know we don't know. They are. We are. I, I come back to Saint, Saint Winnie the Pooh. Uh, <laughs> I have a bare, very little brain. We just don't. <laughs> we just have the, lack the capacity to understand very much that goes beyond our comprehension. I, I, I used to when I, I used to teach philosophy, and I used to bump into this all the time. 
I remember having a conversation. I, I got a maths, a maths teaching colleague to help me, uh, to try and visualize this. And it, we were talking about infinity. Oh, what yeah. does infinity mean? I said, well, it means different things. <laughs> you know, for example, can you have an infinite number? Infinitely big number. And the answer in a sense is no, because you can always do infinite number plus one and now it's bigger. Mm-hmm. You can always do plus one, plus one, plus one. So there's, there's this like a series sequence. If you start doing, start from zero, then start with one, add another one, another one, another one. You will never, ever, 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 ever stop. You can keep going for an eternity and never stop. Mm-hmm. But we can't picture that. No. And we can visualize that. And then that's completely different from the idea that there isn't such thing as an eternity, which is not endless at another second, but rather is a timelessness. And we can't even imagine what that means because, no. uh, you know, we, we, everything that we know is confined. Mm. And so we have to at some point say, we can talk about this this much and no more. And so my math teaching colleague kind of said, well, we don't really understand any of these things either. And we just left it there. But what we do, what we do know, we should hold on to really firmly. And the important thing again is you've got your acorn, know what to do with it. We have our promises in God's word and we know what to do with them. And then we just need to accept that God knows what he's doing, even when we don't understand and we'll joyfully wait for him to reveal to us those things that we are currently are mysterious to us. What isn't mysterious is this, what he says, Jesus died and rose again. Even so through Jesus, not in themselves, not in any other power, not by, not because angels will carry us or because some other thing God will bring with those who have fallen asleep. That's the important thing. So they will not be left behind. In fact, quite the opposite. This is verse 15. This we de- declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now, as soon as you see this, Paul was writing, this I declare by a word from the Lord. What is he talking about? What does that mean? I declare to you by a word from the Lord. By what's been written in the Bible. No. And how will it happen? No, not Bible. It's not his own thinking. It's given. It's given to him. It's not his own thinking. Sorry, can you, can you, uh, can you repeat, repeat all of that? We missed it. Sorry? Can you repeat all of that? Sorry, it was so quiet. Ah, uh, okay. That, that it's not, it is not his own thinking, but it has been given by God. So it, it is something that is, um, you can, you can trust fully. Yes. And yes, you're absolutely right. It's even more specific than that, which is that this is something that Jesus taught. So this is a teaching of Jesus. And we have this um, from time to time in, in the New Testament, we have this, you know, things that Jesus, uh, no, uh, I'll, I'll give you another example from First Corinthians. And this is, um, uh, on a completely different topic, uh, in chapter seven, when Paul is talking about marriage. Um, and he says, um, 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 um. He says, verse 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Verse 10, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, 
that if any brother has it. So he switches in and out of, this is my opinion. This is my instruction. This is not me. This is the, G- this is Jesus himself saying. And whenever he starts to, does that, he's very rarely, this is one of the few places where we have this, we can say, okay, so Paul, we take your opinion as that. In the same way that I might say to you, in my judgment, you know, when I say to you, funerals should not be a celebration of life. They should be properly uh, occasions for grieving and for Christian hope, not just looking backwards. Jesus didn't tell me that. The Bible doesn't say that. That's me. And if you say, I, I hear you, Pastor, but <laughs> I think everybody should wear red and orange and, and, and yellow and and we should sing lots of happy songs and not think about sadness. You're not there by sinning because you went against what I gave as an advice, because it's it's my opinion. Now, I might say as Paul, I wasn't born yesterday. I too have the Holy Spirit, and I can give you some really good theological reasons why I have this opinion, but it's not a word from the Lord. You're not contradicting Jesus by doing that. Jesus didn't say anything about funerals. He tended to go and disrupt them by raising the dead who's been buried. That was Jesus' attitude to funerals. He's dead. Come back to life. But here he says, I declare to you by a word from the Lord. So what he's about to say comes from Jesus' own mouth. It's not something that Paul made up or somebody taught it to him or he's part of the general water in which they're swimming. He says that we who are alive, this is verse 15, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. You can see there, he is assuming that he and some of them, you know, that some of them will be left behind. You can see this kind of expectation of an imminent return. We who are left alive, until are left, uh, are alive, left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What does that precede mean? Yeah, we don't, we don't have any advantage. We don't go first. I was just thinking that um, that's why Jesus came back, wasn't it, to say this is what in your this is to explain that this is what's going to happen to us. Um, but we don't have to come back to do it because he's already done that. How do you mean it? Come back to what? Sorry. Well, back to the earth. You mean? Yes. No, when he's resurrected. Yes. 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 So we don't, our resurrection is not for the benefit of others. Our resurrection is for, is, is his benefit to us. Yes. Yes. But, but that's what we'll be as well. We'll be resurrected. Yes, but not for, for being, not that we'll see each other. Well, we <laughs> <laughs> we will not be raised back to this life. We will no, be raised to a new life. Exactly. Yes. 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 We'll be raised to a new life. Uh, into a new world about which we know very little, enough to know that it's worth waiting. But I can't remember, does it say that we will recognise people? It doesn't say that, no. No, I didn't no. think it did. No, not so <laughs> but people are recognised who yeah. are, who have been raised from. But we probably wouldn't want to, would, you know, I mean, we... Well, you might want to see your mother and... But you love everyone. But the thing is that, <laughs> but you will, you will love everyone as they are, not in some general mass. It's like, um, there's a, there's a, 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 a I think a, a quite a, um, wry but very, um, astute observation that people have made about 
all the kind of uh, idealist, utopian, you know, revolutionary, speaking with the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, all these things. Um, he said that they have a great love of humanity, but they have no time for people. <laughs> so for the love of humanity, they're quite willing to slaughter people in their thousands and hundreds of thousands. In other words, it's a kind of general love, this idea of humanities, but if people get in the way, then they must be disposed of so that we can do this thing for humanity. It's not like that. We won't just love the great mass of humanity, but the, to love your neighbor yourself is that you will love the person as they are. And this is the difference between something like a sort of idealistic atheist communism and Christian, Christian, um, or sometimes been known as Christian socialism, which is that you know, the, the Christian, the Christian faith is, uh, or Christian life and Christian love is about meeting people as those people with their particular lives, their particular needs, and then addressing them as opposed to creating this faceless, um, nameless kind of systems uh, to deal with humanity in general, which is why pol- politics will never be the means by which the love of God will be uh, will be uh, put into effect in the world, but it is human interactions, human co- uh, relationships, human actions. But all of these things, what it will be like, you can ask me 24 other questions about what it will be like, and the answer will be the same. Wait and see, wait and see. We don't know, we have been told. And that's not important. What is important is, A, how we get there, and B, that it is worth getting to. The issue here is, are you at a disadvantage if you die first? And the answer is no. We will not go first. It's not that they are in the second kind of second second class or second carriage. The Lord himself, verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. And notice that it's about Jesus coming back. Jesus coming down. He ascended to heaven. Now he will descend from heaven with a cry of command. This kind of authoritative. This is a military military term. You know, imagine a I don't know the uh, the uh, the, uh, the uh, charge of the life infantry. You know, okay, you know the charge. charge is that kind of yeah, that this guy, this is go go and off. You know, or the you know artillery. You know, fire whatever it is. This is a cry of command. Jesus will come and, and this voice will be heard. The voice of an archangel. And with the sound of the trumpet of God, the archangel, and it's just an archangel. Um, in the Bible, uh, New Testament refers to some Jewish traditions, which identify the archangels, Michael. Hooray! Not you, but the other one, <laughs> the one after you. And what does Michael mean? Anybody know the meaning of the word Michael? Love, Nothing like it, time break. Anything, <laughs> anything, anything with L on the end means God. It means who is like God. So even the name of the archangel points away from himself to God. Who is like God? Um, but whether it's Michael or so, you know, what, or, or, or some, something else, the voice of an archangel. So Jesus is coming down and there's this, there's this cry of comments like attention. Attention, Jesus coming, voice of an archangel, and all attention will be drawn to him with the sound of the trumpet of God. It's like this fanfare trumpets. And you could think of, um, think of something like the fall of Jericho. You know, when they walked around Jericho on seven days, they walked in silence, which must have been a really menacing thing to do. Mm. And, but then on the seventh day, they blew the trumpets and the walls fell down. And Jesus will come with the sound of a trumpet. 
There's this, it's a very sort of mili- strong military image here. Voice of command, sound of a trumpet. Jesus is in charge. He's the arrival of the king. King comes. You know, it's, it's like when, um, you know, when you have a, I don't know, like a royal wedding and you've got the fanfare trumpets in, in, in Westminster Abbey and they start, start blowing their trumpets. Okay. Now they're coming in. It's this kind of announcement of the arrival of the king. So Jesus is in charge and this is, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the cloud. So in other words, Jesus first brings everybody to the same starting point. The dead will rise. Those who are left behind will be there. And once everybody's live again, then we will we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now there's been some really bizarre and crazy teachings about this unfortunately starting in this country and then spread like wildfire in america um in on various sorts um you might have come across the word rapture so rapture theology and things like that so you're there was a whole um, very popular series of books and they was turned into very popular films called left behind um about 20 25 years ago a couple of uh, uh american um uh, Christians made a lot of money out of it. And this idea that there's some kind of a rapture and, th- you know, this, uh, some people will be left behind and some people will go heaven. Mm-hmm. There are like several raise, several phases of the resurrection, all that stuff. All a load of nonsense is based on, and if we, if he was worth our trouble, we could look at where, how it came about in that, that misinterpretation. But here we see very clear what will happen. There are those who are dead, those who are still alive. The dead will be raised, and then everybody is alive together, and then we will all together go and meet Christ. He says, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we so, all learn to fly. Mm, well, let's look at what it means. So those who are alive, when it happens, will we'll start a new life. Yes. Yeah. And there's a, and we will all, you know, again, if I, again, um, go back to, very famous words in First Corinthians chapter 15, which you will, will have heard sung, uh, possibly, but certainly read in funerals. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Same thing. But we shall all be changed. Mm. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, yeah. at the last trumpet. Mm. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Yeah. Exactly the same teaching, mm. just in a bit more detail. So it's not that the dead will be raised and they'll be in a kind of, it's not that those who are still alive get first dibs, you know, who, you know, get to get, get the, uh, the front of the queue. And it's not that those who've been dead, who are dead will be changed and will be left as we are. And so, so if when Jesus comes back, you haven't ever saw any, you've got an eternity with a sawny. No, we shall all be changed. And he says, for this perishable body must put on imperishable, put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And so famous, famous words from First Corinthians 15. So he's, he's teaching on the same subject matter, uh, but at this time he's teaching now, uh, you know, on, for a different reason. So he goes into more detail. But this is what we see. Now, what does that look like? No, he doesn't say we will learn to fly. He said we will be caught up. Very different. So if I, if, if, if you know, 
Um, if you, I, I, I find myself from time to time at 30,000 feet, but because I could fly because I was caught up by an aeroplane. Um, this, but the language of the sky, caught up in the sky, the clouds, of course, brings to mind, should bring to mind some, something else. Where, where do we see, uh, people being caught up in a cloud in, before the, Jesus' return? There's one very famous incident of somebody being caught up in a cloud upwards. The ascension. Well, yeah. The ascension of Christ. So what he's really saying is, he's, it's, it's bringing to mind this, the, the ascension of Christ as a, like, like Christ ascended, we too will ascend. After, uh, meet the Lord in there. So we will always be with the Lord. That's the point. We will be with the Lord. He doesn't say we will be with one another. But of course, it's a, it's a, a byproduct. If we're with the Lord and we're all with the Lord, then we're with one another as well. But the key point is not that we are with one another, but that we're with the Lord. Mm. You know, if, if, if a teacher in the playground says, children, blows the whistle, said, every, everybody come to me. The key point is that everybody's with the teacher. It's not that they, you know, like, let's go with, where, where, where my friends are. You will just end up in the same place as your friends. Mm-hmm. But the key point is go to the teacher. Jesus will be with Jesus. And that's what we're aiming for. And the reason I'm emphasizing this a little bit is that I, I don't want to kind of uh, be a kind of spoil sport and say, uh, never mind, never mind seeing your loved ones again. But uh, what I want us to remember is that that's not the goal. And that's not the best thing that God has for us. He's got something even better. If you think that's something worth waiting for, and I, I think it is, then we could say, yeah, but there's some, imagine, there's, there, what, it, what we will have will be much better still than that. Jesus is better company than your best friend or your dearest relative. Really is. And so he concludes, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Remind each other of this. And then having, having, sorry, any, any sort of further thoughts or questions about that? That this, this whole issue of the dead being raised. Any other things to which I can say, wait and see? Well, we've been told the, the basics and we have to wait and see. Yes. Yeah. We've been told what matters. You know, there's a, it's a, like, you know, in any job you might as well, what about that? So never mind that. That's what, you know, you just, you know, what's, what's behind that door? So nothing to do with you. Staff only. You know, you keep going this way. Uh, one other thing I would say is that there is, of course, there's, there's been, there are a lot of questions about what is the state in which the dead are while they wait the resurrection. You know, are they, like you say, do they, do they see us? Are they in heaven or are they somewhere else? You know, what's going on? And again, it's a question to which the Bible has, about which the Bible has very little to say. I thought you just, you just, um, in a sort of trance, really. Well, we, again, wait and see. We don't really know. We haven't been told very much. Um, obviously we have a few instances, only a very few, where, uh, you know, the dead, um, reappear famously Moses and Elijah trans- mountain of transfiguration we are told that when Jesus rose from the dead uh, the tombs of the saints were opened and some of them appeared in the city a bizarre kind of detail about which we know absolutely nothing else um, so much so that no none, only got Matthew writes it down and all the other evangelists just ignore that pass over it in silence we don't know 
Um, and, but this idea, for example, that, that we die, when you die, you go to heaven is not entirely, uh, accurate because the New Testament, generally speaking, speaks of death prior to the resurrection as sleep, not as joining the heavenly choir. I can tell you what doesn't happen. You don't become an angel. <laughs> Any more than when dogs die, they become cats. Different species. You will never be an angel. The angels are servants of God, which are uh, which serve us at God's command. And that takes us then to Paul. Then um, in, in chapter five, uh, con- uh, continues on the on the general topic. Um, of, uh, the resurrection, or of, um, of the, uh, coming of the, uh, the end of the world. Yes, yeah, so chapter five, uh, and we are going to uh, read the first 11 verses. Mike, would you be on for reading? Yep. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written, anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Thank you. We'll stop there, yes. So, he continues on the same theme, but now instead of teaching us something that they that is new, he returns to what he had already taught them. And this is, again, really core teaching uh, in the New Testament. This is something that Jesus talks about a lot, especially towards the end of the Gospels. Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, that you have no need to have anything written to you, then he goes on to write about it anyway. But why does he, why does he say you have no need to have anything writ- written to you? Exactly. He's already taught them about this matter, but he reminds them, old and new, as I said. So this is the old that he brings up. Times and seasons, referring to what? Uh, In this case, no. It's referring to something, you know, Jesus talks of this saying, um, I mean, it's a, this is times and seasons. It's a, in Greek, there are two words that English has one word, you know, uh, which is time. There's time like, you know, uh, a specific time. Um, 
And then there are times, um, like when we talk about time in a more general sort of sense, like seasons and, and, and so on. Um, you know, there's like, now is the, now is the, now is a good time to invest in stocks and shares. It's not talking about, it doesn't mean 1230 or, or, or quarter past nine. It means that this is a kind of opportune moment. Does Paul think, um, Christ is going to come back in his time? He seems to mm. in these early letters. But like last night we read from in, in, um, in Compline, we read from 2 Timothy and he clearly speaks in anticipation of his death. So he, he, in these early letters, he seems to think so. He calls it, oh, we who are left behind, we, 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 is always a we rather than mm. those who are left behind. Um, and then at some point he clearly begins to think, actually, I will die before. So in Philippians, uh, in, in the letters to Timothy, for example, he speaks of his in anticipation of dying to be with Christ. But don't, don't you think that, you know, just because we think when he's dead and he's, um, that, um, what am I trying to say? That it's all in one. So when, when I die, I expect to be straight with Jesus. We don't know. But that's... You know, we that's, says we are asleep in Christ. We sleep in Christ. Is he what, referring to... Oh, sorry. Go on. So is he referring to with what Jesus was already, already teaching, that nobody knows about the time. Uh, it's it's God himself alone, not even the Son. So it's like, don't, do not start thinking of this or that day or that then the season will be the one. It's a, that's, yeah, that's the teaching. That's the basic idea behind this part of the uh, this part of this teaching is that the timings, if you like, because he uses these both words for time, both the the actual times and the kind of seasons and 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 kinds of you know. Um, it's 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 not for us to know concerning the timing of when these things will happen. Exactly what you know, we're not like the cult that says it's you know midnight today. Uh, at the end of today and go and sit in his house and wait for it to happen. It comes when it comes. And it says, you yourselves are fully aware. Why are they? <coughs> Why are they fully aware that the Lord will, will come like a thief in the night? Because he's been telling them. Yeah. He's been telling them. And who said it that he will come like, a, that Jesus will come like a thief in the night? Who's that? Who, who came up with that phrase? Jesus himself. Jesus himself. It's in the gospels. Jesus said, I will come like a thief in the night. Now what's the thing about the thief in the night? What's the point of saying he'll come like a thief in the night? Very quiet, very stealthy. That is one thing, but that's not the point here. We were talking about timings. Have you ever been burgled? Yes. 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 And did the burglar come exactly when you expected them to come? I didn't expect we, him to we come. We were out. Well. We weren't there. Right. And the system no, if, wasn't working. If you'd known that the system wasn't working and the burglar was coming, you would not have gone out. No, you? no, no. It's a New Year's Eve. That's yes. Even if it had been the Queen's birthday, you would have stayed at home yeah. if you knew that somebody was going to break in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You're so the thief in the night. Right to know, are you? Sorry. You're not given the right to know when it's coming. It'll the, happen. Yeah. The point is that you know, thief in the night comes at a time where you don't expect. That's yeah. what Jesus said. Mm. Mm. At a time, you know, a day or a day and an hour that you don't expect. Mm. So it's not the selfishness of it; it's the fact that it's it's surprising, catches you by by God. Now, if you know that the thief might come at any moment. When do you need to be ready? Then. 
Then, and how are you ready then if you don't know when then is? You have to be ready all the time. You have to be ready all the time. Be prepared. Be prepared all the time. Mm. You know, you don't get insurance on the day that you're going to crash the car. No. You get insurance all the time because you don't know when you're going to crash the car. That's true. And and in the same way, he will come. I said, the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord meaning the day when Jesus returns, like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, and this seemingly is a Paul kind of mocking the the uh, Roman Empire of his time, because at this time we they, the Roman Empire had basically reached a state of what they call the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, where the empire was very large and it was secured at its borders. There were no empires or kingdoms on the outside that had any realistic hope of actually breaking in and overthrowing the Roman Empire at this time. They had a system of roads and of, of shipping lanes. Uh, the, the Romans in the first century BC had basically cleared out the Mediterranean Sea of all piracy. they just gone round everything. they just sailed around the whole coast, and any pirates they found, they crucified them mm-hmm. until there were no pirates left. Mm-hmm. So you could it, travel was reasonably safe and easy, and there was no prospect of inv- an invasion if there was ever going to be a war, the war was going to be either civil war, which, of which at this time there was no threat of because the empire was strong in the centre, or a war where Rome decides to go and, and invite somebody else. So there was this general sense of the Roman peace. And the Roman peace was very, very important. One of the reasons it enabled, for example, the rapid spread of Christianity, because people like Paul could travel easily, um, or, you know, long, long distances, knowing that the chances are that if you set out on the road, you will get to where you plan to go. Yeah. Uh, shipwrecks, notwithstanding. Mm. And so there is this kind of idea, peace and security. And don't we live in that, you know, we, well, until about a year or two ago, we, we lived in the same way. I mean, the whole pandemic took everybody by terrible shock and surprise. We, we thought that we, we, we've gone beyond that. We don't do this anymore. We've got medication. We've got modern medicine. We don't die in our droves anymore like they used to do. And all of a sudden we did. There's peace and security. All is well. Nothing's going to go wrong. Mm. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. I, all of a sudden, you're not in labor. You are in labor. Putin. <laughs> well, the, we're not talking about world war. We're not talking about what goes in the world. We're talking about Jesus returning. Yeah. And the death and sudden destruction is a destruction of the sinful world as it is. And they will not escape. I, there's no, there's no way out. But says, but you, and this is a key point, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. There is no night as far as you're concerned. The thieves, the thieves come in the night. But as far, as far as we're concerned, we are in the day. We have light. We see. Thieves come in the night because they're much less likely to be, to be spotted to be detected because they're invisible. But we are not in the darkness. We're not, you know, Jesus doesn't come to us like a thief in the night because we see him all the time. We don't know when he's coming, but we are constantly ready. You are all children of light, verse 5. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Now, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who know and those who don't know. Those who can see, those who can't see. The light to lighten the Gentiles is what Simeon calls a Jesus. Today, by the way, is Candlemas. Did you know? Mm. Today is the day of Candlemas. 40 days from Christmas, 
presentation, feast of the presentation of Christ and the temple and the purification of Mary. When Jesus went to the temple, was brought to the temple by Mary and Joseph, and Simeon came and recognized him. So happy candle master. And he sang of Jesus that he's a light to lighten the Gentiles, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. We have been enlightened. And so then we are not of the night of the darks. And so then he changes to a different imagery of sleep here. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. This is bring to mind any teaching of Jesus by any chance. The ten virgins. Yeah, the ten virgins, remember. The five foolish and five wise virgins. And they fell asleep and then some weren't ready when the bride and groom came. Let us not fall asleep. Stay awake. The, um. The same of the disciples, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, they keep falling asleep. No. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. And this word, the English doesn't have it, but, uh, a Greek, Greek and Finnish, these two noble languages, uh, have, uh, have a word that is, is a verb, word that means the active effort of being awake. Not just that you happen to be awake, but that you are wakeful. You know, like, you know, if, for example, you're waiting for someone to come home in the middle of the night and you decide not to go to bed, but you keep yourself awake so as to be ready for them. It's that kind of when you make it, make an active decision and an effort to do that. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what Jesus said. Watch. Be awake. It's what like a watchman does. You don't go to sleep. Just watchmen don't not sleep because they can't get to sleep. It's their job to stay awake. And we as Christians, we are to be awake and be sober. Now, it's this, this verse isn't primarily about sobriety in the, in the pure, you know, in a, in a literal sense, although the Bible has plenty to say about that too, but it rather, it means that, you know, you're so in your, you're in your full, you're fully self-controlled. You're in your full, uh, with your full, uh, judgment. You don't, you don't become distracted or incapacitated by things that take your eye off the price. You know, why do people, people get drunk sometimes because they can't face the day as it is. Mm. You know, it's life's too hard. So you get drunk so that you get distracted. And Jesus, no, be sober. You stay alert. Ready when he comes for those who sleep sleep at night and those who get drunk are drunk at night but since we belong to the day let us be sober and then he this is the first time that we get the first outing in paul's letters of an image that he develops much more famous in ephesians having put in the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation That would have made sense in those days because people would have been used to seeing soldiers dressed like that Indeed. So this is a typical Roman soldier's kind of thing. Mm. Now the, the armor of God is developed much more in Ephesians chapter six. So, um, uh, Paul writes in Ephesians six about, let us put on the armor of God. Um, the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God and to stand there for having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
That's the whole armour of God. And you can tell Ephesians was written about 10 years later. So he's had time to think about this. And, you know, he's been teaching and he's been developing this thing, you know, what can I turn this into? So here we have just the, the beginnings of that. Breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And notice the three things. What are the three Christian virtues in that verse? The three Christian virtues that he lists in that verse. Love. Love. Faith. Faith. Salvation. That's not virtue, that's the outcome. Belief. No, that's the faith still. What's the word? Word Verse 8 has a, one word in it, we haven't got it. Silver? That's not a f- virtue. Verse 8. Verse 8. Huh? Sorry? Verse. That's not a virtue either. <laughs> it's not a verse 8. That's 9. Hmm. Hope. Oh, of course. Yeah. Ever heard of faith, hope, and love before? Yes. yes. These three things, amazing. faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Yes. So again, we see here something that already is already here. Paul develops it more fully mm-hmm. later on in First Corinthians 13. It's, I, I don't know if you agree with me. I find it interesting to see that in the very early first letter of Paul, he's got all these ideas, like germs of ideas that later on develops much more in his later letters. So you can kind of almost see that he keeps teaching the same things and the teaching becomes more established and more, more developed and more elaborate. But these are the three things, breastplate of faith and love. What does a breastplate do for a soldier? Protects the, Protects the vitals. Yeah, vital organs. And helmet. Keeps his head safe. Yeah, protects the head. So the, you know, your, your vital organs and your, and your head. Faith and love mm. and hope. So faith and love are like the engine room, like your heart and your lungs, your kind of beat, the thing that keeps you going. And hope is the thing that you keep your eye trained on. Mm. So your heart is beating, your lungs are working, and your head is looking in the right direction. And faith and love go together. Faith is trusting God, trusting our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love that we receive from him, and which we therefore also live in. And then the hope of salvation. When is salvation? When does salvation happen? When you die. Not quite. Every time you take the wine. Nope. Salvation. The answer is, it depends how you think of it, but the primary meaning of salvation, salvation is rescue. Now you look at what he's just been writing about. While there's peace of security and sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon them, they will not escape, but you're not in darkness, blah, blah, blah. Then he talks about hope of salvation. If it's a hope, where in time is it? Coming. It's in the future. So when is the hope? When is the salvation? In the future. Which which particular bit of the future? When Jesus comes down. When Jesus returns. When the death and destruction come upon the wicked, mm. we will be saved from that death and destruction. So we are already saved because we when we you know, when Jesus died, he died for the sins of the world, he brought salvation to the world. When we were baptized, we were given the hope of salvation. We are saved, therefore, but the salvation is fully to come uh, still. It's a bit like if you're I don't know, if you're on the beach in Dunkirk, you know. The ships are already coming your way. Rescues are in effect. And therefore you are, but you're not, you're actually still on the beach in Dunkirk. Mm. It's not, but one day you will be back 
uh, in Dover or wherever you've been, you know, or Portsmouth, wherever they're for bringing you back to, and then you are finally rescued, but the rescue is already in effect. It's already in motion. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's two things coming to the world when Jesus returns, wrath for the ungodly and salvation from wrath. And wrath means what? Yeah, it's righteous anger. Yeah. Uh, righteous anger of God against all ungodliness or against all injustice. So when you oh, say, why is there so much, why is the world so unfair? He will stop to be fair, unfair then. He will become really fair then. Justice will come. All unbelievers will be killed. Uh, it doesn't say killed. Will receive wrath. So there's a whole bit of ju- judgment, they condemnation. Just won't be resurrected. Well, actually, we, the, 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 we, we speak of hell, don't we? Yeah. yeah. Punishment, not just mm. non, non, non-life. So there's punishment for all, all evil will be punished. Again, that's not specified. A lot of the images that we have of what hell is like is actually come from medieval literature, not about hell, but about purgatory, all the kind of hot pokers and all that kind of business, um, which is made up stuff about purgatory, which then got uh, transferred to hell. We don't have that sort of detail, but Jesus talks about being burned up with fire. Uh, it talks about, you know, the worm, their worm will not die and, and fire will not be quenched. Basic images of suffering. Uh, which come as a consequence of evil and wickedness. That's emphasised more purgatory and hell in the Roman Catholic Church. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yes, and particularly purgatory. And there are some there are some Protestant traditions that have really go hard on you know really go to town very hard on hell. Mm. Uh, and the Bible doesn't. It addresses Christians to say you know, there's wrath to come, but there's salvation from that wrath. And and so it holds up before us the hope and the promise rather than uh, the, the fear of hell. We should not run to God because we're fighting of hell. We should run to God because we have hope uh, in him. And this obtain, we obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, not in ourselves, not through our efforts, not through our uh, virtues and our, and, our, and our cleverness, but through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And that for us means kind of in our place, so that whether we are awake or asleep, and he goes back to the first image, alive or dead, we might live with him. So, whether, you know, this is exactly from John 11. You know, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And you never lie. So whether we are awake or asleep, we live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The idea that you're, we're being strengthened and, and being fortified by reminding each other of these things. And again, think of, you know, when, when people are either uh, worried about the future or they are weak in faith or they're struggling because of grief or fear of death or anything like that, how do we comfort them? How do we, what's actually genuine comfort? You know, the world is full of all kinds of, uh, all kinds of um, platitudes and, and fake false hope. You know, they've gone to a better place. Have they? Mm. You know, they're, you know, they're now with granny. Are they? <laughs> is that the best you can offer? Um, it's one of the challenges I have when I take funeral. I I, I do regular you know, from time to time. I'm asked to be. I asked to. Uh, I'm asked to conduct funerals of people that I never knew. And I, we almost invariably know that if I'm asked to take somebody's funeral, they were not a churchgoer because if they were, they would ask their own minister. Yes, yes. Yeah. So it's usually they got some kind of a Lutheran connection because they were born in some Lutheran country, you know, um, or something like that. How do you speak to 
their loved ones in a funeral when you know that they hadn't darkened the door of the church for 50 years. What do you say? And I, I, the one, one certain answer is that you do not give them false hope. It'd be irresponsible to say, don't worry, your granny's gone to a better place. I don't know that. No. But I can tell you is what God says about who goes to be with Christ, uh, you know, who has the hope of life and who hasn't. And I'll leave you then to, you know, you who knew her or him, I'll leave you to draw the conclusions from that. But, you know, we, we, we are in a better position. So when, when we encourage and comfort one another, let's do it with the truth, with these things, not with made up, the made up things of the world that sound like comfort, but are nothing of the sort. You know, if, if a doctor says to you, there, there, have some paracetamol and actually you're dying of cancer, that's not really much help. Might make you feel a bit better for a bit, but it doesn't actually help. And same with the gospel. So that is, um, that is the kind of, uh, the, the, that's the heart of the lesson. This question of hope in the midst of death. So this is what, you know, if you think of the whole letter thus far, he's writing to a grieving congregation and it's full of joy and full of confidence, full of hope. And I think that's a really marvelous thing. But we haven't got time for the rest of the lesson now. Um, what we will do instead, we'll stop here and then we will uh, continue next time. And we will simply run into the second letter to Thessalonians. We see because Paul writes a second letter, not very long after. In fact, some some scholars have argued that two Thessalonians is earlier than one Thessalonians. Um, it's impossible to know, but it is, I would say it's unlikely uh, that that's actually the case. Um do you know why, what, what order Paul's letters are given in? Why they're in the order that they are in the Bible? Why are they, why is it Romans first and the first Corinthians and then? Was that done when people set it up after? Mm-hmm. It was, it, they were, I mean, much, much later. Yeah, yeah. Century later. Yeah. But why are they in that order? Any idea? Is it because that's the way they thought it should run? Nope. No? Longest letter first, shortest letter last. Oh. So Romans is the longest and Philemon is the shortest. But then they group together first Corinthians, second longest, but then they put second Corinthians, first Corinthians, second Corinthians was put with first Corinthians because they belong together. And so they in length order, they're completely out of, so there's no logic. No. And there is no, no chronological development. So if you wanted to reorganize the Bible in chronological order, you'd have to move them all about. Yeah. But anyway, so that's why I propose we, we stop here and then we carry on next time. We don't, we don't have a whole Bible study's worth, uh, next time in this chapter, but we can just run into the second letter and see, because he, he then has to return to some of these same things, uh, because they haven't quite, uh, fully been settled by them. But you didn't um, put a stamp on a date on it when he was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It would have helped. Oh, but no, he's given loads of employment to scholars to, to kind of yeah. have whole careers working this stuff out so they could yeah. feed their families. So it's been quite nice. And there are there are timestamps there. They're just really well hidden. And having acts really helps because it helps us to cross-reference a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what scholars do. They kind of take acts and they take the... All the different, you know, like all those names in the ends of letters that we kind of, or why we've been told about all these people and greet, uh, greet, greet Aristarchus. So who's Aristarchus? Well, I don't know. But what you can do is if you actually take, you take acts, you take all the different places that mention Aristarchus is that you could start kind of, it's like those police dramas where they have 
all the people on the board and there's oh, four yeah, lines yeah. between and yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. And you, we can sort of figure this puzzle these things out. Mm-hmm. As I said, this is how their families get bread and butter on the table. So any, any final questions, thoughts, comments, uh, uh, before, uh, we finish from anyone? It's not really to do with this, but I can't remember. Were we ever told how old Paul was when he died? No. 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 Paul's death happens, is not recorded in the Bible. No. Uh, we had been told, and we've got no reason to doubt it, that he died, uh, during the persecutions of Nero, which would be in year 66. Oh, Nero, 66. Yeah. And that he was beheaded just outside Rome. Yeah. Um, and, if it's year 66, we know, we can be confident also that Paul was younger, for example, than Jesus. Mm. There's a Stephen's death, he's referred to as a young man. Mm. So uh, Paul in the year 66 might have been a f- five years older than me, something like that, <laughs> in his 50s. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which in those days was a, you know, decent, decent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, why? But I always think of him as an old man. He's often depicted as a grey, grey-bearded person, but like when he's writing this, mm. he's probably in his early thirties. Mm. Probably. Or mid-thirties. Not, a, you know, which in those days was considered middle age. Mm. Because a lot of oh, people yeah. Were young, but yeah, by our standard, he was, mm. he was, he was not that old man. No, no. no. I mean, age has definitely moved on. I mean, when I was mm. young, a lot of men died in their early seventies. Oh yes. You know, that's yeah. why the old age pension started at 65. Mm. And if you had it for five years, yeah. you were lucky. You did well, yeah. yeah. Which is why it's not working very well. <laughs> that's no. right. Any yeah. other final re- uh, questions or reflections? No, it's quite uh, quite interesting. Mm. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the firm and joyful hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that those uh, brothers and sisters in the faith who have slept in the Lord are not lost, but will be raised in the last day. And we thank you that we too have that same hope that whether we are alive when Jesus returns or whether we sleep the sleep of death before them, we have life in him. And the death, the power of death has been taken away. The sting of death has been blunted. And so we ask that you would always keep us mindful of this, that our hope and our joy would never be taken from us, that we would grow in faith and love, and that we would encourage one another also, build each other up, so that our whole lives would be a manifestation of your goodness and your love towards us and towards the whole world. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen.